This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley. Today, we've got none other than Bake Off star Prue Leaf on the podcast. We'll be talking to her about assisted dying and why she thinks it's time for politicians to legalise it. But first, it's time for this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, I'm joined by The Times columnist Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And Deputy Opinion Editor and Columnist at The Financial Times, Miranda Green. Good morning, Miranda. Hello, nice to be with you. Nice to be with you too. No Henry Zeffman today, but uh, we've got a... I think we've got a star panel in his uh, in his absence. Um, right, Danny, front page of this morning's Times. Uh, this afternoon is the deadline for the Cabinet Office to hand over WhatsApps to the COVID inquiry, uh, or not... Uh, let's have a listen to William Hague speaking about this on Times Radio Breakfast this morning. He argues that some things should be kept private. I think that the problem here is the precedent set for the future. Um, I think when you're in a crisis, and I've been in a few, uh, what you most need is people who will give you honest, uninhibited advice, who will say, actually, what my boss told you is just now is wrong. Or actually, I have a completely different view to what everybody just said in that meeting. Mm. And so, well, now all of that takes place on WhatsApp now. And I think that if those messages are all then to be given an inquiry on whatever said, but people are, they're not, they're going to be less likely to give that honest advice. Do you now think, Danny, when you were working for Conservative leaders, you were lucky not to be working in the era of WhatsApp and constant digital communications that were liable to be handed over to statutory bodies at any given time. Yes, probably. And uh, the Conservative Party was at that point so far behind Labour in terms of its communication and technology that that uh, even if we'd been in the right age, we wouldn't have had the right equipment. Um, and I, I do sort of remember doing the budget once and having listening to Tony Blair's reply and having to watch it on the television and then call it down the line and then the television went off because they weren't didn't have all of Tony Blair's reply when it was really quite amateur. Uh, so yes, we do. We're, we're lucky we didn't live in that age. Um, you know, if one of the things that's very interesting about being a, an advisor to um, 
to governments or politicians who are in government is you constantly get this advice, don't set the precedent. Uh, it's, it's often legal advice and politically it's highly difficult to follow. And it happened during the 1997 election with Neil Hamilton mm. and the Privileges Committee. It was a political disaster for the Conservative Party not to, 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 to be forced to follow precedent. And that's what they're engaged in here. I think they've, as well as following William's advice about precedent, they've got to look for a way out. Maybe the right thing is to say precedent means this cannot be made public, but we will be willing to show the inquiry chairman um, the, uh, the 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 WhatsApp so that they can satisfy themselves. Um, because this line, in my view, while it may hold legally, while it may hold in terms of precedent, it won't hold. Uh, Miranda, what do you think? And also, how would a, how would Paddy Ashdown? For, for whom you worked, coped in the WhatsApp era? Well, I mean, I'm still surprised what people will put in an email, to be honest. Uh, you know, and back in those days, you know, we I would have said you just always were very careful not to put things in an email. You wouldn't want in private eye. That was our test, mm. the private eye test. I mean, I think they'll probably be worried about what leaks, even if Danny's suggestion were taken up. But, you know, I have to say, some of the objections, as, you know, eloquently voiced by... William Hague there, do remind me of all of the arguments against bringing in freedom of information legislation in the late 90s by the Blair government. It was the same sort of same sort of arguments were used. You want political advice to be given frankly. You want the conversations to be open. You want people playing devil's advocate so that you get the best possible policy making and therefore we shouldn't make it public ever. And of course, Tony Blair famously regretted introducing freedom of information legislation but as we know as journalists it's been absolutely crucial in terms of scrutiny of government and in terms of you know uncovering dodgy dodgy dealings so i think i think there are strong arguments on both sides and really because the whole covid process was conducted in such a panic you know it was really unprecedented crisis that government had to deal with you know, there would be very, very important lessons learned if, if, if we knew everything that happened. So I'm pretty much on the side of full disclosure, but it's, it's shaping up into a major conflict, really, between um, Lady Hallett and her inquiry and the government. So, it, you know, I think sparks will continue to fly. And how damaging do you think this entire process, because obviously this is, you know, the sort of process before the process itself, before politicians themselves a question before the inquiry Danny how damaging do you think this has the possibility to be I guess you know if talks uh, if rather you know public sessions are happening next year in the run-up to an election how damaging do you think that could be for Rishi Sunak and his government look, look the truth about this and it may not be a comfortable one and people always get annoyed when one says this but it's true most people will have not have noticed this story mm. uh, most people will not follow this in great amount of detail uh, so I think what the way that we should try to discuss it is um, is this the right thing to do what will be the precedent you know and we are very much stuck between the two things one is I want to know absolutely everything uh, that particularly Boris Johnson's government and his advisors got up to because you unfortunately cannot trust the things that they say in public. I've lear we have learned that they, what he claims in public is not necessarily true. Uh, that is, I know this will sound odd to listeners, quite unusual. I think Miranda will probably agree. It's quite unusual uh, for a politician to be, to sort of, 
go that quite that far from what is factually on the record. So that, that I, I do want to know. But I on the other agree. hand, the, pre- agree, yeah. the precedent issue is 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 an important one as well. So you are stuck. So I think there's got to they've got to find some way out of it. And I'm my concern here isn't really that I think it's going to be a big issue. Um, for the government, sometimes these things catch on, and they it could be, but it's most of most of the time a detail like this, uh, you know, dis- discussion with the inquiry and everything. Words we'll go like to people, cabinet office. Yeah, well, people, people, very little people who people. don't like Boris Johnson already or don't like the government already will be enraged by this. People who are inclined to think that something nefarious went on already mm-hmm. will be will be confirmed in their view. But whether it will change the minds of anyone else, I'm less clear. I, I think Danny might be taking a disproportionate amount of comfort from the quite correct assertion that many people will not follow the detail and the ins and outs of the inquiry story. Because I think actually, even for Rishi Sunak's government, desperate as he is to say that this is a new era, you know, that he's turned the page on the Johnson and Trust era, the kind of bad smell, particularly about issues like cronyism, you know, really, really big money contracts over PPE, etc. That sort of whiff around the Tory party is going to be quite difficult to play down, you know, as the sort no. of phony war hots up towards I the to- I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I don't say any any comfort from it particularly. I don't, I don't really mind whether, well, you know, I'm just trying to sort of analyse what I think okay, they, uh, they what would I think be might taking happen. too much comfort, yeah, I think. That, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> and also, isn't it the case that, as was the case when Matt Hancock's WhatsApps were leaked wholesale to the Daily Telegraph, that people inevitably focus on the the trivia and the, you know, intemperate remarks Boris Johnson may or may not have made. You know, if these WhatsApps are released wholesale, will we necessarily... Will they... Obviously, you know, there'll be a great wealth of uh, historical record, but what people will end up talking about isn't necessarily the... Well, it tells us about the decision-making structures or lack thereof in number 10. People will be talking about... I don't know, whatever off-colour joke Boris Johnson has made on any given afternoon. I remember a whole thing with David Cameron where the how he used the word LOL, which was where he thought it meant uh, lots of love, whereas in fact it means laugh out loud. And I knew that because he'd sent me... um, the, the message uh, LOL when my father died and I so I realised he must have meant <laughs> lots of love um, but so, yeah so you do get concentrated on you people will concentrate on that but we nevertheless we will learn you know from this and you'll there'll be a nagging feeling that the inquiry isn't getting everything if it doesn't have access to all the information and the way that people exchange information in government so I, I see why the inquiry wants it and I think they have to have some method of in, of satisfying the inquiry about the content of it and so I don't think the line the government's taking while it may hold up in court uh, why it may help held held up in kind of arguments about precedence will not will not work politically and they will have to find some solution to it and miranda speaking of safe spaces for government communication uh, you've been writing about uh, the safest space of all for any cabinet minister uh, country houses like checkers yeah so you know all the ferrari about what went on in the johnson era you know, again, has kind of focused on his social circle and, you know, whether inappropriate socialising was going on during lockdown. And it has spotlighted the use of checkers, the country house that's in trust for the use of prime ministers of the day. You know, and I was trying to look a bit more broadly at, you know, these grace and favour houses because it's quite a unique and interesting sort of facet of our government 
And, you know, there's such sort of disapproval, really, of the political class generally. I'd be really interested what Danny thinks about this. That there's a sort of assumption now that anything that looks like a perk of office is just automatically sort of condemned. But actually, you know, I was talk I talked to Anthony Selden, the, the historian of recent political history, about it. And there is quite a good case, not just for continuing the use of places like Chequers, and Chevening and Dornywood, which are the other two near London, which are reserved for senior members of the cabinet. And, and even a question as to whether we actually underuse them. You know, I mean, what's this country got going for it at the moment? <laughs> and as you can see from the Netflix show, The Diplomat, one of the things we've got going for us is still this incredible architectural backdrop. And why don't we actually use these houses more for diplomacy, for kind of showing off British cultural riches? And so I think actually, you know, there's a you, you could you could say that rather than just letting Boris Johnson or you know his successors and predecessors go there in the immortal words of Danny Dyer to put their trotters up, you know, maybe we should actually be using them more actively for government to you know convene international conferences, you know, solve climate change, you know, devise a peace plan for Ukraine, whatever it is, because they're fantastic. Well, as, as as US presidents have done with varying, varying degrees of effectiveness in the past at Camp David and other sort of retreats, Danny. Yeah, there's a fantastic... Uh, Camp David, why not turn it into Camp David, yeah. There's a fantastic occasion when, where um, the Prime Minister of Malta tries to get Ted Heath to solve his marital... Don, Don Mintoff tries <laughs> to get Ted Heath to solve his marital pro problems by having a, a convening with his wife at Chequers. Um, and it didn't work, by the way, and nobody could have been less suitable at such a piece of peacemaking <laughs> of than Ted Heath. domestic peacemaking. Uh, domestic peacemaking than Ted Heath. Um, they are extraordinary places, and I've been to a few... Um, meetings there which are you know which which wouldn't have worked in Downing Street and which also you know took account of the fact that the prime minister living in an apartment inside Westminster um it actually is a good idea if they go somewhere else uh and and so I'm you know I'm in I'm in favor of using those things in the way that Miranda uh suggests um you know but it just wasn't it isn't necessary who knows whether this is what's happened because it hasn't been judged yet it isn't necessary for someone obviously to use those in contravention of the of the rules and lots of us uh, ended up in places which were inconvenient or difficult during uh, covid so you know it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't change that story. Let's talk now about Labour. Rachel Reeves was in Washington last week uh, sketching out her doctrine of what she called securonomics, uh, basically the British version of Bidenomics. At the very centre of that is a plan to spend $28 billion a year on green investments. Where's that money coming from, you ask? Well, Labour intend to borrow it. But can they persuade the public they'll be able to borrow money on that scale even if it's for energy security and reindustrializing bits of the country left behind by globalization while still being prudent with the public finances. Two uh, big threads of Labour's offer pulling in different directions here. Uh, Miranda, do you think the public is ready to hear any politician, still less a Labour one, arguing for borrowing, even if it's for investment? Um, it's really hard for them. And I thought your piece was fantastic, Patrick, laying out the danger in this, as they try to explain this policy, which you're right, is an absolute centrepiece of the Labour economic plan to, as they call it, green the economy. 
And the problem, I think, politically, there are lots of things we could say about the problems in practice, but the problem politically is, you know, in the after the trust quarting disaster budget, the slur about thinking there's a magic money tree, which the Tories have always been able to accuse Labour of in recent years, particularly during the Corbyn era, you know, Labour could then turn around and say, hey, look, it's actually the Tories in power, very dangerously thinking that there's a magic money tree and announcing unfunded tax cuts and terrifying the markets and therefore putting everyone's mortgages up, etc. You know, if, you're, if you've got a plan which centres around 28 billion every year mm. of borrowing, however good you make the plan sound, you're opening yourself up once again to accusations of thinking there's a magic money tree. And, you know, Rachel Reeve is an incredibly small C conservative shadow chancellor. She is the absolute epitome of that Ming vase task of a Labour opposition trying to win power, to try and get your precious prospect of power from one end to the other of a slippery floor without dropping and smashing it. And she is really careful about spending commitments. So I think that her team are really worried about this, actually, and it's how they present it. And also, of course, as you pointed out in your piece, this would be about spending by Ed Miliband, under a climate department, potentially under Ed Miliband, who's the current shadow. And there are sort of whispers about the influence of Ed Miliband over the Starmer team. You know, I think it's going to be very interesting whether you see Reeves's team talk down the package or try and make absolutely sure that they're as clear as possible um, it, it is a danger for them. But the, the, <clears throat> this is an opportunity for Rishi Sunak, but it's also a risk. The only way that he can go after this story is by saying, I warned Liz Truss not to, not to borrow a lot of money. She ignored the warning. It was a disaster and she had to fall. That's why I'm Prime Minister. We shouldn't do this again. But he has to be, he has to be willing to grasp doing that. Um, what, willing it, to he has directly to, criticise Liz He has Liz to be Truss. willing to direct... Uh, if the Tory... If he does not do that, he cannot make this argument fly. Because the obvious thing is, well, you guys borrowed all that money. You thought it was all right. Um, and he obviously has the advantage that he did not think it was all right, and he argued against it. So him and Jeremy Hunt have to be willing to say, uh, you're about to do the, make the same mistake that we made, and that's why I'm Prime Minister, and I'm not going to let it happen again. And I think then he can make this issue work. Uh, but he can't make it work without that. Uh, and so he has got a decision to make about whether he's willing to do that. It will be difficult for him with some people in the party, but I think it probably wouldn't be as difficult as he thinks. So I'd be for doing that. But then I've been for him drawing a line between himself and the previous um, previous prime ministers already, and that isn't something that he's been willing to do. Because he was willing to make that argument very forcefully during the leadership contest, which is obviously an adversarial thing, making competing offers. And, you know, we're talking about Rachel Reeves's fiscal rules cutting across her sort of economic commitments. Do you think this is an, that's an example of Rishi Sunak's immediate sort of priority for party management, cutting across what's Absolutely. in his electoral he, interests? He, he, this is one of the reasons why... There's a gap between Rishi Sunak's ratings and the party ratings. People ultimately will have to vote for the party, but he'll only do that if they think he's actually in the lead of it rather than it's in the lead of him. So he's got to be willing to do that. And th this is actually a pretty good test case. This is a very strong issue just inside his grasp, but he has to be willing to reach for it. That was Danny Finkelstein and Miranda Green. You can read Danny every week if you get yourself a Times subscription. 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, I'm here at the Dignity in Dying's campaign event, Make Time for Assisted Dying in the House of Lords in Westminster. I'm currently in a marquee on the House of Lords Terrace, surrounded by a very unlikely crowd from Leaf to several Tory and Labour MPs and peers. It's been organised by Leaf, the restaurateur, television presenter, broadcaster, cookery writer and great British bake-off judge. She's been campaigning for assisted dying to be introduced in the UK for over a decade. After watching her brother's long, painful death, despite being surrounded by palliative care, she now campaigns for the organisation trying to legalise the right to die. Let's try and grab her before her speech. So, Leaf, we're here in the House of Lords. Tell listeners who might not be aware of your stance on this issue, why did you hear? Well, I'm a huge supporter of the idea of having an option to die when you want to. I mean, I honestly think it's your life. Why shouldn't you get rid of it if you've had enough of it? So I have been supporting Dignity in Dying for a long time because my brother had a horrible death. My elder brother had a really horrible death. And I think until you've actually seen somebody you love die, it's something you don't want to think about. But anyway, it was horrible. And that was 12 years ago or 10 years ago. And I've been campaigning ever since, along with other stuff I do, eating cake and things like that. At at the time, did your brother express a wish that he wished he could die yes i mean only at the very end i mean he hadn't thought about it either and i don't think that he'd ever envisaged that bone cancer is an amazingly excruciatingly painful cancer and it doesn't kill you it just you have to wait for it to get into an organ for the cancer to spread to some vital organ that will kill you so he only wanted to die when he was in unbelievable pain and they couldn't do anything about it. I actually think they could have done a bit more about it because they could have dosed him up with more morphine which at least would have put him out of the um, the pain. It might have also sent him to sleep and maybe if he had too much of it he'd have died. But it would have been legal because you can give um, patients, as long as the intention is to um, alleviate pain, if the side effect is that you, they have too much and they don't wake up um that's as long as that's as long as that is not the intention it is legal to do that but his consultant would not give him any more morphine he said to me 
I'll never forget it. He said, do you not realize that morphine is very addictive? And I said, you, you've said he's going to be dead in three weeks. I don't think it matters if he gets as high as a kite every day for three weeks. But anyhow, he wouldn't budge. So I think, you know, he was very unfortunate. But um, there are, you know, there's thousands a year, probably 6,000, we reckon, of people who die with unrelieved pain when they are in agony. But nobody, can, nobody does anything about it because it's against the law. And, no and nowadays, doctors are very, very mindful that... They, you know, even if they know what they're doing, giving hay a bit, a bit more morphine is legal. They don't want to be suspended by some nurse who belongs to pro-life or something and says that, he, that they have murdered somebody. They'll be suspended for six months. They'll probably be cleared. But that's their life ruined, their family's life ruined, their income gone and probably their job gone. So, you know, doctors and consultants are not prepared to do that. As it stands, what are the options available to people who are in the position your brother was in? What options do they have to do end their own lives legally, as it were? Well, they can commit suicide, and committing suicide is legal, but it is extremely dangerous. It often doesn't work, um, whereas you know perfectly well if you take your dog to the vet and they give him a lethal injection, the dog doesn't come back. But if you try and kill yourself, you very often vomit up the pills or you don't... It, you, know, you jump out of a window and it, you don't die. But the thing about all this is you have to think of it in advance. I mean, the three options, legal options in England, are suicide or there's Switzerland, but Switzerland costs at least 15,000, 15, pounds, which not everybody has. And you have to go there on your own and you have to go when you're still well enough to do so so you're actually cutting your life a bit shorter than you need to because you've got to think ahead take yourself there because if you take your wife or your friend they will be party to assisting you killing yourself which in england is illegal and then the third option is to put up and bear it suffering you know we say suffering suicide or switzerland who wants any of those they're all horrible options and how receptive have you found you know as you say you've been campaigning on this for quite some time how receptive is the political establishment? Well, the political establishment is lazy about it, really. Um, they have debated it a few times in Parliament, but they never give it time to not be talked out by the opposition. So you can have a few opposition candidates or peers who, don't, who just talk it out. And if it's a private member's bill, if it doesn't get through in the allocated two days or whatever it is, then they can filibuster is the long and the short of it. They can prevent it happening by talking. So I want MPs to commit that whatever shade of the political spectrum they are, that they will put in their manifesto, that they will give proper parliamentary time to debate this issue properly. Because, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a select committee going on at the moment, but all it is doing is listening to both sides of the argument, and it will conclude nothing. You know, it's just a political nonsense. We need somebody to propose a bill, debate it, and vote on it. What are your responses to the well-rehearsed arguments against legalising assisted dying, that people would be pressured that families facing financial hardship for people with chronic illnesses would nudge them towards it. Obviously, Canada has introduced medical assistance in dying, and there's lots of controversy, as in certain estates in the United States. So what's your response to those criticisms? Well, I agree that there need to be really good safeguards, and we don't have to follow anybody else's law. I mean, we're not trying to do what they do in Canada. 
uh, we're talking about terminally ill patients. Um, their law is a bit is a bit wider. And by the way, I think that the the, the cases that people talk about in Canada are are mostly enormously exaggerated and um, and unverified and. One of the reasons it's difficult to verify any of this is because of doctor, patient and doctor confidentiality. Doctors can't talk about their cases. So very often, I think, to be honest, if anyone, all, almost all the cases I've heard of in Canada have either been absolute aberrations, a simple, you know, bureaucratic mistake. One of them that it comes up over and over again is that, there, that a man was offered, offered the choice of an assisted death when he wanted to go into a, a home and it was just a mistake they they got that the wrong person to go and see him they said you know he's talking about he wants to die he didn't really mean he wanted to die he just felt that it's something he just said oh god i wish i was dead or something like that and so they sent him the wrong guy so yeah things happen mistakes happen but he you know he, he never did die so it, it, it never happened and you hear also that there's the other famous case about a woman having a stair lift installed who was then offered uh, medical assistance in dying but you're saying those sort of cases with proper safeguards wouldn't arise yeah, of here of course they wouldn't i mean in any in any organization you can get somebody doing the wrong thing or making a mistake or or, or frankly being evil and inappropriate i mean for goodness sake we had harold shipman who scores us a huge amount of problems ever since because you know he was a villain he was a murderer but i don't think any legal assist any law will ever be absolutely watertight you can draft it as closely as you can but what we need to do with this one i think and you know i'm not part of the drafting so it will all depend on the people who sit around the table but there should be really tight safeguards i mean i think if you have two separate unattached doctors who have examined you and talked to you and found out that you really do want to die and you're not being pressurized by your family now that might not be entirely possible but you know doctors make these decisions all the time about life and death nobody admits this but of course doctors are rationing care all the time they're thinking this guy is 80 years old he's not very well he's not going to live for an enormous long time is it worth me giving him a, a heart transplant or a new knee no it's a very expensive process and i've got young people who are in the queue who are desperately you know, so doctors make these decisions all the time. So I think doctors are well versed to listening to arguments, to listening to the patients, to trying to find out exactly what's motivating them. And if one of those doctors is their GP who's known them for a long time, mind you, we have a problem around here because our GP rarely knows us for a long time anymore. Um, but in an ideal world, a doctor or a psychiatrist or some professional should know that patient well enough to know the truth of the matter. But I think the more, the more um, serious objection to assisted dying, which again I think is all about safeguards, is the fear that it will become a kind of dystopian method of filling up beds. You know, uh, you put the, the budget holders in charge and they're going to look for the cheapest option. And obviously, it is, it is obviously cheaper if somebody dies than the health healthcare system has to look after them for another two years while they're absolutely miserable and in enormous pain and costing a lot of money. But that's about 
culture and our institutions. I mean, I would trust the NHS not to allow that to happen. I think there are enough good men and true, or good women and true, to make sure that we are honest, that we are not making decisions for financial reasons. So I don't think that would happen. Uh, listeners will know you from the Great British Bake Off and a range of other things. What they might not know is your son, Danny Kruger, the senior Conservative MP, is an outspoken opponent of assisted dying. Have you convinced him yet? No, I haven't convinced him. And we went off on a, on a, made a documentary together for Channel 4, and he, he's very opposed to assisted dying, and I'm very in favour of it. And we managed to get through two weeks uh, without a crossword. Because, you know, I think what we need to... I need both sides of this argument to talk to each other and we need to listen to the patients. People who are in unbelievable pain and who want to die and a system is stopping them. It's just ridiculous. We're not helping them. I think it's crazy and I, I don't agree with Daniel and Daniel doesn't agree with me, but I can't help that. We're at the Dignity in Dying event in the House of Lords where Prueleaf and other campaigners for assisted dying are gathered with MPs and peers making the case for the legalisation of assisted dying in the UK. We've already heard from Prue, so let's now hear from some other people whose lives have been affected by this issue. So, Barbara Shooter, Times Radio listener no less, what brings you here today? Uh, well, my husband went to Switzerland in December, choosing to end his own life. He had motor neuron disease and it was becoming very advanced and having always been very determined that he could live as long as possible because there were so many aids and different things available to help him. When he got to the stage when he needed to start using a lot of those things, he absolutely hated it. And he just found that life was becoming increasingly intolerable. And he knew he was dying and he just wanted to die as quickly as possible. It was all he could think about in the end. I think he was quite close to death when we went to Switzerland. But having that control back at the end was extremely powerful. And he had a very good death. And I will defend his right to do what he did and what I did in helping him to the end because it was the right thing for him. It's not right for everybody, but it was very powerful for him. And listeners may not have heard of your husband, Adrian, but they'll quite possibly have travelled on Chiltern Railways, which he (laughs) set up. It must have been difficult for him having that sort of debilitating chronic illness as someone who'd lived life so fully. He coped, he coped with his illness very well and was very stoic um, for most of the time and, until it just became intolerable. And, and he said, I'm just existing and, you know, I've lived and I don't want to just exist and I know it's only going to get worse. And he just wanted an end to it. And it wasn't about palliative care. We had access to excellent palliative care. But it wasn't enough for him, and he, he didn't want that. He didn't want to just be existing. And st- every day just became more and more of a torment for him. Almost every day would bring some new thing that he couldn't do anymore. He had a voice app. His voice be- was quite slurry a lot of the time, and I'd always been able to understand him when other people couldn't. And when I started to not understand him, he hated that more than I can tell you. He'd... he'd banked his voice and he always thought the voice app was going to be oh fantastic you know when I lose my voice it'll be great because I've got the voice app when the actuality came and he had to start using a lot of these things he absolutely hated it and just did not want to carry on in any way at all and and how early did you have the conversation about assisted dying he literally started talking to, to it about six weeks before he died I mean it was it was quite late on really uh, and when he first 
asked, to, started to talk to me about Switzerland, I was actually initially quite shocked because he'd never mentioned anything like that before, having always been determined to carry on. But I wasn't shocked for very long. And then talking about it more, it seemed to be an eminently sensible thing. We didn't go to Dignitas. Everybody thinks Dignitas. We didn't. We went to an association called Pegasus, who are just south of Basel. And when we first contacted them, they were told there was it would be you know, a process to go through. It would take a couple of months, maybe. Adrian was distraught when he was told that. Eventually, in the end, he managed to persuade them to bring that date forward. And in the end, we got almost no notice, a couple of days. And um, I drove him to Switzerland, and it was a lovely thing. You know, there wasn't melancholy, there wasn't sadness, there was reflection, and there was emotion, and all sorts of things. But, but, but there wasn't sadness, because it was what he wanted to do. And his death was loving, and calm, and dignified, and it was a wonderful thing. And I imagine, you know, you've spoken very powerfully about that relief of taking back control. But I imagine there was part of you at the time that thought, God, I wish I wasn't having to drive my husband all the way to Switzerland. There was a way to do this at home. Yes, it, it, yes, of course. I mean, we were fortunate that we had the wherewithal to get to Switzerland and to, to go through that process. A lot of people wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, so yes, doing it at home would have been better. And of course, there's also the thing that in helping him, I've broken the law and I am potentially open to prosecution, which is another really ridiculous thing because I'm proud of what I did. I don't think I did anything illegal at all. I helped a dying man end his suffering. And as far as I'm concerned, that is an act of great compassion. It's not an illegal act at all. I think it's the utmost cruelty to make people in the late stages of life who are suffering intolerably to carry on until the bitter end if they really don't want to. There's lots of politicians here on the House of Lords Terrace today. If any of them are still opposed or still have lingering doubts about whether it's the right thing to do to put an assisted dying law that allows people like you to do what you do on the statute book in the UK, what would your message to them be? I think the law has to change. I think the law needs to be very well structured. I think that there needs to be a lot of protection around the law. I think that, for instance, you know, just merely having a disability, to me, is not enough grounds. I think if it becomes legal to do it in the late stages of a terminal illness, that's a completely different thing. And I think that's compassionate. And I think that's really the way that this country ought to go. Well, that was Barbara Shooter, the widow of Adrian Shooter, the founder of Chilton Railways. He took his own life in Switzerland after su- suffering from motor neurone disease. Let's speak now to Dr. Ashley Frawley, Associate Professor of Sociology at Swansea University. Morning, Ashley. You heard Barbara Shooter there. You've written that you were once in favour of the idea of assisted dying, and now you're not. What made you change your mind? Yeah, it's one of these issues where you think, you know, as a liberal type, you know, I can get on board with that. And it's mainly these kinds of stories that we've just heard that made me just de facto in favor of assisted dying. And then a number of cases began to emerge of the situation in Canada, where I'm from, um, both publicly and in my own personal life, that made me realize, I don't think that this is happening because we're becoming more liberal as a society. I think we're becoming more blasé about human life, and in particular, certain kinds of human lives, people with, with severe disabilities. So, for instance, the case of Roger Foley, who has um, 
a disease that affects his ability to use his arms and legs and requires um, quite costly forms of community care, which he continually requested. And instead, he was offered assisted dying and hospital staff, he felt, continually guilted him about the cost of his care and offered him instead um, assisted dying instead of assisted living. And then a very close family friend uh, was suffering from multiple sclerosis and um, was very severely disabled. And um, when he was, every time he became ill, he and his mother would go to visit him. He was in, he was in care. Uh, he was telling his mother, look, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But every time I become ill, they, they're not really taking care of me. I'm terrified. Mom, please take me out of here. Um, and his mother felt oh, terribly helpless because there just wasn't the support available in the community to take care of him at home. Uh, and unfortunately, um, he ended up passing away as a result of a very minor illness. Um, and he continually expressed his fear that the hospital staff were not caring for him, that they didn't see his life as valuable. And every time he was ill, it was kind of like, well, you know, this is it. And he was like, look, I'm, he was in his late 30s. And he was, you know, I'm, I'm still young. I, I, I am still able to do things. My life has value. And he felt that that was not widely shared. And I think this is, this is a situation that's happening in Canada. A recent survey came out that showed people are increasingly in favor of offering assisted dying for things like poverty. Um, and, and this becomes an issue um, when, uh, when we, have, we don't see the value of certain lives, when it becomes impossible to live in the community because of external effects rather than something internal to yourself and your own body. This is, this is the situation that we're running into, that this is what made me change my mind. So what Leaf and other advocates for liberalising the law in Britain would say is that, yes, they recognise that the Canadian system has had its pitfalls and weaknesses and there have been cases like the ones you've mentioned but their argument would be okay let's introduce tougher checks because pre-leaf makes the argument i watched my brother die in agony the only options available to him were suicide switzerland or suffering what is the argument against a system that is tougher than the system that's been introduced in in canada imperfectly as you say that gives people that sort of freedom at the in the last moments of their life well, this is the argument that was made initially in Canada. And, and indeed, the law as it is now was not how it started. Hmm. Um, there were a number of provisions and safeguards that were the result of years of extensive consultation, um, parliamentary, legal debate. Um, and at the time, it was hailed as a thorough and rigorous policy um, that had a number of safeguards in place. But very, very quickly, almost all of these began to be decried as unbearably oppressive and unjust. Um, and most of those who were advocating um, medically assisted dying, um, much as people in the, in the UK are advocating today, um, they claimed that they just wanted a modest system just for these exceptional cases. But as soon as the process was established, it began to be expanded. And this is what happens with a lot of policies. Um, we call it a slow education process. Um, advocates often want something a, a bit more extreme than most people will accept. And so they will begin with something that is quite agreeable. But as soon as they win that, they can carry on toward things that are seen as far less agreeable, uh, and then slowly, slowly it becomes something um, that people were not really in favour of to begin with. And so you've got to have, I absolutely agree, it has to be all of these checks and balances. It has to be something that 
you absolutely would not want to take up except in the most extreme of circumstances. That's what most people are on board with. The issue is that almost as soon as the legislation gets passed, it starts to erode and it starts to become offered to a wider and wider array of groups. And this becomes an issue in a situation where we have a struggling NHS, um, where we have a serious problem of social care in this country. Um, and a lot of people with disabilities, they, they, feel as though they are a burden on people. And in the case of Roger Foley, the medical staff expressly made him, he, he anyway says, that they made him feel as though he was a burden. But even without that, you have to understand that there's a context around these things. And if this, if this kind of legislation starts to erode, then we start to open the door to all of these really sort of nasty social prejudices to have an effect on, on people's decisions to take their own lives. And that is not a society I think anyone wants to live in. Well, Dr. Ashley Frawley, Associate Professor of Sociology at Swansea University, thank you very much indeed for joining us to make the case against uh, Prue Leith's argument for liberalised assisted dying legislation. You heard uh, before Dr. Frawley from the Bake Off judge Prue Leith and from Barbara Shooter too, whose husband Adrian took his own life. That's all we've got time for on today's Redbox podcast. Remember to like, follow, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley. I'm here till Friday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.